Great, good morning. Please do keep that uh, passage open. That would be fantastic. Page 1004. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, thank you so much for uh, your words. Uh, And Lord, please would you uh, speak to us by your spirit through it uh, this morning. Would you soften our hearts uh, this morning, that we might listen to you and be doers of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a new uh, colleague at work. We were talking a bit about what I was going to be doing at the weekend. I said I was uh, going to be going to church. And uh, she knew a bit about uh, churches in the city, so we had a chat about what was uh, going on. But one of the striking things uh, about the conversation was how she seemed essentially to perceive uh, the Christian faith as a hobby, another kind of extracurricular activity. It could be golf. Uh, instead, it's church. How wide of the mark, I thought. And yet, was my colleague that wide of the mark? The Christian faith deals, doesn't it, with, with issues too deep and too serious for church to be some kind of hobby or club. Yet, so often, that is exactly how we treat Jesus. Jesus says extraordinary, uncomfortable things that require a serious response. But too often we just want to make Jesus a part-time advisor, if that, not a king. The truth is, I think, we struggle to grasp how a relationship with Jesus radically challenges our thoughts, our beliefs, how we relate to people, how we live. Well, in this passage this morning, we see the radical priority of Jesus, his radical priority It runs through this passage. What we've got here this morning in this passage is a literary sandwich. I wonder whether you noticed that. It's one of several literary sandwiches that Mark lovingly prepares for us, as Pret might say. So we've got bread, meat, or some suitable vegetarian substitute, and then bread again. Bread, meat, bread. So the outer verses about family are the bread, and the inner verses about Satan are the meat. And Mark is using this literary device to make a point. And his main point is this, Jesus must be, Jesus must be a higher priority than anything else. That is his point. Well, let's get into the passage. We're going to look at the two pieces of bread first, and then the meat in the middle. So I think firstly, we see the radical priority of Jesus. Just look at verses 20 and 21. This is the first slice of bread. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus has been causing big-time controversy. We saw that earlier in chapter 3 of Mark, uh, three weeks ago. And it seems that his family have decided, you know what, enough is enough. It's okay turning up at a wedding, doing the old wine trick, but Jesus, he's been preaching, he's been conducting exorcisms, healing people, violating the Sabbath, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one. It has all become too radical, too controversial, perhaps that bit too embarrassing for his family. You can imagine, can't you, what Jesus' brothers must have thought. What the heck is going on here? You know, the guy used to be a head-down carpenter, making doors, but now he's on the radar of the political and the religious power groups, inspiring opposition. The big cheese religious heavyweights, they're coming down from Jerusalem 
uh, verse 22. Who in their right minds wants that kind of attention? He's not even got time to grab a bite to eat. The opposition is mounting and the pressure is on. So they conclude, don't they, Jesus is insane. He is off his rocker, out of his mind. So they go to take charge of him, to seize him. That is the sense in that phrase. They want to control him. And you see, as mother and brothers arrive in verse 31, towards the end of the passage, the second slice of bread uh, in the sandwich, and we've got, haven't we, this slightly awkward standoff. Do you see that? A kind of a social etiquette, social convention thing uh, seems to be at play here. So Jesus is inside the house. The crowd is sitting around him, circled uh, around him. Mary and his brothers, where are they? They're outside. They send someone in to call him out, and the crowd say, verse 32, your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Message seems to be, you know, go, go on, you go on. Do, do the right thing. Mum's here, be polite. Head on out, be a good son and brother. You go and see them, it's okay. We're okay here inside by ourselves. But do you see the astonishing reply of Jesus, verse 33? Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and says, Here are my, mother's, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What is the point Jesus is making? Jesus is saying that his family, like everyone else, must relate to him on the basis that he is their Lord and Saviour. That is more important than family ties or social convention. His family must relate to him on the basis of the claims he makes for who he is. To do God's will is to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to him, and to do what he says. That is how everyone must relate to Jesus. His own mother and brothers, they are no different. This is, isn't it, the consistent teaching of Jesus. He constantly challenges our family ties. Just think about those words of Jesus in in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those words seem outrageous, don't they? So over the top, surely an exaggeration. Well, Jesus is not literally saying we must literally hate our family members. It's a teaching device. He's not saying tear up the fifth commandment, but he wants to make a powerful point, a powerful teaching point. He must be number one. Jesus must come first, and everyone else must fall into second place. If you think about it, it is actually quite liberating stuff. In the very occasional idle moments, I flick through the pages of Hello magazine, which my wife uh, leaves, leaves littered around the house. Um, but it is, it is striking the way in which kind of that relationship, that other special person is put on that kind of dizzyingly high uh, pedestal. The other person is a perfect, all in everything. But as time passes and as pressure builds and as a performance appraisal goes on, the reality dawns that the person is, the ground they walk on doesn't deserve to be worshipped. And we can't cope with a disappointment in the small things and sometimes the big things and the way that person lets us down. 
But if Jesus, if Jesus is our number one, if he is our primary relationship, we can enjoy, we can enjoy human relationships and all the blessings that flow from them without having to get our identity, our value, all our joy from them. It's probably right to say that none of us have parents, do we, that should be, that are all that they should be. Many of us will have experienced deep pain, malice even, in the relationship with our parents. Perhaps rejection and ridicule because we're a Christian. How can we deal with those disappointments and letdowns? Well, if Jesus is our primary family relationship, if he is closer to us than a brother, if through Jesus we know the God who made us, who loves us, more intimately than any other human being, then our human family does not have to be our all and everything. We can relate to our family in the right way. Jesus is our primary family connection. He can be our all and everything. And then wonderfully, we gain a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ, sitting around you today. I think as well as the lesson for those of us, surely, who have children... And I think particularly for fathers and husbands. The most important thing we can do as Christian parents is to model lives where Jesus comes first. I think we crave many things that we think are good for our children or or make for a good family life. Mine is currently a Land Rover Discovery, (laughs) which isn't going to happen. But... (laughs) But the best thing that we can do for our children is to model lives where Jesus comes first. So we don't want to be making the mistake of thinking that what matters is is having our children just go to a great school or spending every half term at Centre Parks or learning five musical instruments before they're age three. They they can all be good things, apart from perhaps the last. But, But a deep, you know, a life of deep and eternal joy and blessing is a life where Jesus comes first, where he is Lord, there's nothing more important for us to model as parents. We might say, well, what right does Jesus have to demand that he comes first? What right does he have to make such claims on our lives? Well, I think the answer is in the meat of the sandwich in the middle here, and we're left in no doubt here about exactly who we're dealing with, because here we have the identity of Jesus, crystal clear. Just look at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, that's that's Satan, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Just notice at the outset there, there is no question, there's no doubt about what Jesus is doing here. No one doubted the power that he is exercising. The question is, by whose authority is he doing this? So much for the argument that all we need to do is see a miracle in the flesh and we will believe. Their conclusion is that Jesus himself is possessed by demons and that the power he uses to cast out demons is a power of none other than Satan himself. We saw at the beginning of chapter 3 the brilliant kind of cross-examination skills of of Jesus. And here Jesus uses piercing logic and parables or metaphors to demolish the absurd conclusions that they've reached. Do you see that? First, he shows how illogical their conclusion is. Look at verse 23. 
How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. We see today, don't we, in Syria that nothing destroys a kingdom more effectively than a civil war. A divided house is weak and ineffective. This is a house in a kind of Downton Abbey sense, the Grantham family uh, sense. If Jesus casts out demons by Satan's power, it is like a nation or a family engaging in an internal war. If you were Satan, would you really declare war on yourself, asked Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus is clearly freeing people from Satan's control. If Satan is driving out Satan, then surely his end, it's arrived. And yet, obviously, it hasn't. Because we've still got death, there's still disease, evil spirits still exist. Satan still has a strong army, a strong house, so it can't be divided. So this cannot be Satan. Their conclusion is illogical. And then do you see Jesus goes on to show them the conclusion they should have drawn? Look at verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. If Satan is a strong man, what is required to defeat a strong man? Answer, a stronger man. Jesus is saying, I am I am that stronger man. Look at the facts. Look at the facts that none of you doubts. You've seen me roll back disease, drive out demons, introduce a new power and authority into the world. You can't explain it any other way. So why do you continue to resist with hard hearts? Jesus says, read the signposts. Put the jigsaw together. Join up the dots Satan's kingdom is being rolled back. Hope, hope is coming into the world. Broken lives are being put back together. There is light instead of darkness. Men and women are being led out to freedom. The stronger man has come. I am, says Jesus, the saviour of the world. And I'm walking here onto the stage of history. God's very own son, the promised Messiah. See and believe. Do we see and do we believe? We're left, aren't we, with the challenge of Jesus, thirdly, the challenge of Jesus. Look at verse 28. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He wrote this, Christianity is false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see, with Jesus, there is no middle ground, is there? There is no no man's uh, land. So the challenge is this. If Jesus is the saviour of the world, walking onto the the stage of history, whose side are you on? That is what these verses about the unforgivable sin are about. Whose side are you on? Before we get to verse uh, 29, just look 
at the wonderful assurance of verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Is that not incredible? Is that not an incredible thing to say? We may think, but how can I be forgiven for the way I treated that person? All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. How can I be forgiven for leading that double life of hypocrisy? All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. How can I be forgiven for the way in which I've let my wife, my family and my children down? All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. How can I be forgiven for that persistent, that destructive pattern of behaviour? All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. God sees and God knows the darkness of our hearts, and yet he longs to forgive. We should never downplay the forgiveness of Jesus. Don't ever think that you're somehow in a category that is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. That is rubbish. If we repent and we turn to him, we can be forgiven. It is a wonderful promise. So what about these awesome words in verse 29? What do they mean? I think the unforgivable sin is unforgivable because it is a sin which is not recognised as a sin. It is a sin that is not confessed as a sin. It is a sin which is seen as right and good and not confessed. So I'm proud, and I'm proud to be proud. I'm greedy, and I just don't care. I live exactly how I want, and I'm entitled to do so. Jesus warns that if you harbour the attitude to your dying day, you will never be forgiven. This is not about a one-off comment or the doubts that all of us as Christians voice at some point, or the questions about people, of people who are inquiring about Jesus. The disciples were constantly asking questions and constantly getting it wrong in spectacular fashion. Rather, this is about a persistent position, a persistent position that says light is dark, good is evil. A persistent position that says Jesus Christ is not Lord. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Hardened, persistent, willful resistance of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of who Jesus is, that will never be forgiven, says Jesus. So we can say, can't we, that if we are worried about whether we have committed the unforgivable sin, that is proof that we've not Because the sensitivity of conscience that 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 shows can only be the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. The person who is concerned about whether they've committed the unforgivable sin, the person who seeks forgiveness, cannot be guilty of that sin. But the person for whom this verse washes over them, who is unconcerned, they are in a dangerous position, says Jesus. And yet, the forgiving arms of God in Jesus are open wide. So is Jesus your Lord? Is he number one for you? We can be very clever, we can be very successful, we can be generous. We can even believe, I think, as Christians, that we've made great sacrifices for Jesus. But none of that puts Jesus in our debt. None of that means that we can call him 
and control him at our beck and call like his family thought. Jesus is not some kind of divine management consultant we call him when there's a crisis, but decide his fees are too expensive at other times. The true disciple of Jesus recognises that Jesus is Lord and I'm not. I think often we want to set the agenda, don't we, for our own uh, lives. We, we draft the contract that sets the terms for our discipleship of Jesus. Jesus signs up to our more reasonable and considered terms and conditions. And we self-justify sometimes by thinking that our motives are reasonable. It's to protect our family, our bank balance, our friendships. We try to direct Jesus, but we don't take charge of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and I'm not. I think this is vital, isn't it, to shaping how we understand how we should speak about Jesus. Because sometimes we want to create what we think is a more enlightened, a more nuanced gospel. So we search for the experimental, the new thing, the contemporary Jesus, the Jesus who we think is going to seem more engaging to 21st century life in Norwich. So we start just to edit the gospel, to kind of take some bits bits out. Jesus is a healer, a social worker, a friend, the one who calls for justice. Anybody, anyone but the Redeemer and Lord. Anyone but the one who binds Satan by being bound himself. Anyone but the one who goes to the cross and bears away God's wrath in our place. And yet for Mark, that is the key in this passage. That is the meat in this passage. Jesus binds the strong man and everything flows from that. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Are you following him as Lord? We need to stick close to Jesus and not not try to remake him in the image that we want him to take. What does it mean, finally, to be a Christian? Surely, as one person once said, it means this. I lose control of my life to Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and I am not. It is only, surely, when we lose control of our life to Jesus in authentic discipleship that we will know true freedom and joy, that, that we will be able to provide the sort of leadership that our family and our children need. Jesus is Lord, and I am not. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for this uh, passage. Uh, Lord, for the great truths uh, that are in it, the foundational truths that are in it. And Lord, please would you help us to grasp them uh, more deeply. Lord, that we might see and understand Jesus for who he is. Lord, that we might know more of the calling he has on us because of what he has done for us. Please would you guard us against settling into lives where we remake Jesus, refashion him into the person we want him to be. Lord, please help us to serve the authentic Jesus in an authentic way. In his name we pray. Amen.